Hello and welcome to this episode of Freya's Free Practice Fridays. We have had a new name submission uh, submitted this week, which was Phlegm Free Pharynx, Pharynx Fridays with Freya, but I can't call it that because my host this week is Thomas J. Camp. How are you going, mate? <laughs> I'm very well, Freya. How are you? It's, uh, what is it? What is it over there? Almost midnight, afternoon. It's bright and early uh, on my time this of the world. Yeah, no, look, I'm going well and it's very reasonable here. 5, 5.20pm, I've got a beautiful sunset coming along behind me. So, uh, no, it's nice to be doing this at a, at a reasonable hour, not at, not at midnight. Um, oh, so very well, happy with that. <laughs> I'll definitely make up for that phlegm part in your uh, <laughs> in the title there, but we'll see how we go. We'll give it a good crack. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that, LBS. Um, so that just won't, that won't take. And on that note, before we get into news of the week, I'm going to have to start with some penalties here and for you, Campy, a back-of-the-grid <laughs> penalty for threatening to assault one of our A, funniest and B, nicest supporters who I oh. happen to have met as well. You know, like I left Canada with gifts, coffee, no less, which I sat and watched Formula One with. <laughs> Hey, I love LBS's contribution. It's amazing. But I'll tell you what, when you just cop it every single day from the same guy, every time I check Discord, there is a new comment. It's just, you know, I just lashed out once and it's exactly what he wanted me to do. But he's a quality individual. So I'm sure I can we'll share a beer at some stage. Indeed, indeed. I can confirm that he's absolutely a quality individual um, in the flesh as well. So don't worry, LBS, we've got your back. Campy's not not going to take any swings at you. But um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's be clear, I'm pretty sure he would win. But anyway, let's uh, let's get into some news of the week. And the, the big one this week, Campy, is that the 2023 calendar has been released. I'm yep. going to start off with... Sorry about this, James. No, you don't like it. But what the f***? 24 races. This is a new high or low, depending on how you look at it. Um, But let's start with some positives. Um, What do we like about the calendar? For me, I like the fact that um, we've got some actual races that are staying. So we've got Spa, Montreal, Monza, Silverstone. I love Mexico. So I'm really pleased to see that they're all still on there. Some of those we knew. Um, some of them are just good to be confirmed. What do you like about the calendar, Campy? Uh, no French Grand Prix. No Paul Ricard. <laughs> <laughs> the most boring race. I'm surprised they made that decision. I really am. But um, mm. no Paul Ricard. Um, no Germany, which is a shame. I would have thought Hockenheim Ring would have come back. But Germany, why, how can you not have a Formula One race in Germany? I know we haven't had one for a few years, but I mean, we've got Seb as a driver, we've had the history of Schumacher, and we've got German manufacturers potentially coming in in Porsche. Mm-hmm. Sorry, for, I'll pronounce it properly from now <laughs> on. But, um, um, you know, Mercedes, why are we not having a German Grand Prix? So I'm shocked they couldn't fit that into one of the 24 races. Um, but for me, it's just too many. F1 should be 15 or 16 really big events every year. But it just feels like it's going to take away from some of the spectacle of sport if we've got one. It's literally once every two weeks if you've had it over a whole year, you know. And I just, you know, we start in March. We're going to end in what, just late November. That's a big season for teams and not just teams. I'm talking about uh, engineers, you know, pit crews designers, drivers. I mean, not that I care about the drivers too much, but, I mean, everyone's got families and travelling around the world. I can't imagine can't imagine getting on a plane, you know, 24 times a year to go to some foreign country that's going to be a minimum 10, hour, 10 hours from your house. It's going to be hard work. But, you know, it's the commercialisation of this sport, really, and that's the way we're headed and there's not much we can do about it. Well, no, and like you said, it's just, but it's just too many. And we'll, let's get into the negatives then. We, <laughs> we yeah. went there already, but it's um, no, it is. It's just too many. It's so intense. Like we'll go straight from Baku to Miami. You have a weekend off, then straight into the triple header of Imola, Monaco, Barcelona. Then you take one week off, bloody hop foot over to Montreal. One week off to get back to Austria, Silverstone, Hungary, and then you know after summer break, you're going into. 
Austin, Mexico, Brazil, you have one week, then Las Vegas, then straight to Yas Marina. Um, it's, it's just too much, I, I think. And like you said, it takes away from the importance of each one. I thought we were going all green and like being carbon neutral. This is like doing the complete opposite, <laughs> right? At least, at least this year there's some form to the season. We've got like your Melbournes and your. So we started off in the Middle East, then you go to Melbourne, then do a little bit of Southeast Asia, and then went to Europe with Miami stuck in there. As I think, I just think we should just make them areas at one stage, so it's a hell of a lot easier. Imagine the logistics of this. It's a They'll figure it out because they'll make it work. But, jeez, on a $150 million budget cap too with 24 races, you've got to factor that in as well. They're already talking about three engines for next year. So what more do they want people to do? Well, that's it. And you kind of go like as it stands at the moment, you go Australia and China and you go over to Baku. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you go to Japan while you're there? <laughs> like you said, kind of yep. group it into those regions. Now, I understand that they kind of – there's potentially the risk that, you know, fans from different parts of the world may be disengaged while you're in those different regions and people won't have a race in their time zone for weeks on end. But welcome to her being an Australian supporter, <laughs> for one. And why aren't we opening it either? You know, I, just, I don't understand why Australia is not opening it. Um, but, yeah, like you said, well, lucky they have uh, DHL as their partners to try and sort out those logistics because it is going to be a nightmare. And like you said, with the with the cost cap on top of that as well, it's not going to be, you know, this is not going to be a glamorous experience for people who are working in these teams in particular, you know, your mechanics and everybody else. Um, you know, they're, they're, st- they're staying in kind of low-budget hotels and travelling a lot. And as it it's is, not a, yeah. not Exactly. It's already like that. So that's just going to be more and more um, challenging. I wonder if it is going to affect how some teams organise themselves in terms of going, you know, do we have more rotation, um, for example, when it comes to people who are attending tracks? Yep. That was my next question. What are the – there should be some plus sides to it where you can have a wider team that travels and you get to travel to 75% of the races. I'm not sure how that works from weekend to weekend because you it's then you've got shifting sides. It's like you've got your A team – your absolute A team, but then potentially 25% of that A team sitting out because of a rotational roster. But it does give opportunities to other people to come into the sport and get involved and, you know, we are heading down a, you know, a diversity program where they want more more women engineers coming in, which is, a, you know, which is a good thing. Um, but and it gives opportunity for that as well. So, I mean, there is some, there is some good things to look at too. But overall, I would suggest it's probably a negative – I think, Negative like you said, it kind of twenty four races. Yeah, I think it just takes away from the importance of each each one. It makes each one kind of less kind of pivotal in the the championship. And I, what I would hate is that because you've got um, uh, bloody Las Vegas as the second last race, the penultimate race of the season, and I kind of go, what if it's all on you know down to the wire, and then you've got a fake car park track like Vegas as your second last race of the season? I, I just I don't love how it um, how it's been laid out, but it is what it is, as you say. And um, I I can't remember who it was saying they're kind of happy to see Imola go, which I completely agree with. I just I can never remember what happens there. Um, but of course, Domenicali was Imola's, born there, so it's not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Imola is there. It's the Emilia Romagna. But just on the Vegas too, mm-hmm. as soon as I saw the date for that, I jumped on to try and get some reserva- some uh, some hotel reservations on the strip. You can't get them. All sold out. Yeah. The best you the best you can get is one of those. Uh, look, I'm I'm not. I've only been to Vegas once, so I'm not too great on it. The best you get's just off the strip in one of those hotels, yeah. which is not a uh, which is not a doesn't have a casino attached to it. So that just tells me prices are going to be ridiculously high for, you know, accommodation, travel to get there as well. They're going to be banking on that. It's a good event for Vegas and that's what they do well and they can handle the capacity and that influx of, you know, millions of people for a big weekend. Um, Frustrating for us though that you can't even access – bloody hotels and it's only been, you know, up for literally 10 hours. Yeah, 
Exactly. And like you said, I think we've, we've talked about this on a few previous podcasts. So look, I think at the end of the day, events like Las Vegas, like Miami are not designed for the general audience spectators to be able to access. Yeah. That's not what they're yep. there for. They're there to bring yep. new money, glitz and glamour, the American market who love the kind of pseudo celebrity appearances. Um, and that's what it's there for. And I think maybe we just have to Except that um, I think it's just interesting though because when you speak to people who, you know, are really passionate about this as a sport, they, they, they just see that as a bit of a disappointing addition to to where it's going. Yep. But, hey, that's motorsport as a wise it man is. once it said. <laughs> um, another kind of news of the week uh, component which kind of fits into this element of um, the calendar being released is that Monaco has also been renewed until 2025. Now, I love Monaco. I think I love I love the fact that it's kind of dripping in that history and brings an old school glamour to Formula One. But I do think that it's a bit of a boring race, especially on race day. Obviously, qualifying is much more interesting. What do you think they can do to try and make it, you know, not boring? <laughs> it's not boring. Well, you can't change the track. <laughs> it's so historic no. and there's no room in that city to do anything other than, you know, race – that track. I think if they want to make it work, they need to make the cars a hell of a lot smaller. They're just too big and too wide. And we're not going that. We're not going down that path. We're only getting bigger and bigger wheels, more downforce to get the speeds that we want. So we're not going. If we went back to smaller cars, you may or may not have some passing opportunities in, in some areas. But in reality, there's not much you can do. The thing that we love about Monaco is qualifying though, right? Qualifying is, I mean, you hear what it's like when Danny Rick puts a lap together around there, particularly in 2016 and 2018 when he put yeah. it on pole both times. I mean, look, the elation and it was him knowing that he could not get any more out of that car and I think it was 2018, both laps he did in Q1, uh, Q3, he put it on pole and... You know, you see the smile and they know they've earned their money that day because, you know, each corner, it's we're not talking tense, we're talking, you know, fractions of tense in every corner mm. and to extract the pace out of that car really shows what these drivers are made of at times. I mean, I, I was at Melbourne this year and I was just looking going into turn three and that's blind, you know, from yep. 320 kilometres an hour, breaking at 60 metres, 70 metres into a blind corner is just astronomically... I couldn't even – I can't even fathom what it would be like to be, you know, driving in the seat of those cars lit around those sorts of speeds around Monaco. So I'm not sure they can make it any worse than what it is, but that's motorsport for <laughs> <up>. <laughs> That's going to be <laughs> – that's going to be the theme of this of this podcast. But, no, and do you know what else is really interesting? Just in terms of adding to, I suppose, the the – difficulty of this track as well. And I, I think about it as I, uh, you know, exit the little, the little uncompletely unnecessary tunnel that we have here in Cayman, um, is that that light, for example, differentiation as they're coming out of the tunnel and things like that. And they talk about that in terms of going, you know, all of a sudden you're just blinded as you're coming out and all, and you're, yeah, just lots of little moments like that, which do make it exciting. And let's just hope that Ferrari go and do Ferrari things and keep it exciting for everybody else during the race <laughs> as well. Um, Let's chat about some driver activity um, during the week. Um, there's been yeah, a bit of testing going tests. on. Yeah. So as is usual, McLaren have just invited the world. I think they've invited about 3,000 people now to test um, their previous cars uh, that they've – their previous Formula 1 cars. This week we've got um, – Award, obviously, who has, has done a bit of testing for them before and obviously over with their IndyCar team, yep. um, but also Palou oh, yeah. uh, as well. So this is interesting, though, because he's been caught up in a contract dispute between McLaren, McLaren's IndyCar team and Chip Ganassi. Um, this time McLaren didn't win, though. <laughs> well, I've got zero sympathy for McLaren at the moment. But how many promises... <laughs> How many promises has uh, Zach Brown got out there for Americans to drive F1, F1 cars? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Look, I mean, Pato Awards genuinely got a relationship there. And, you know, it's, mm. it's like when Danny Rick drove that NASCAR uh, that, um, that what's his name, owns that Coda last year. You just saw the yeah. face. I mean, the same sort of deal happened for Awards. So he's shown some genuine pace. Does he. 
I wouldn't. We don't. Re- we don't really know if he's good enough for Formula One until he actually signs on the dotted line and he gets a drive. But the reality is, McLaren have Oscar Piastri and and um, Lando next year, and Lando is probably a long term solution for that team unless he mm. gets the chance to move up the grid. But Piastri will be there for two or three years. So where does Palace? Sorry, where does O'Ward sit? Um, I'm not sure he gets the drive and. For me, there's two Australians and a New Zealander in IndyCar that are faster than him that probably deserve drives in F1 over O'Ward anyway. So there you go. That's my little gripe. That's my little <laughs> side swipe at McLaren for the week. But there you go. Exactly. It's a weekly activity. You've got to fit one in somewhere. Happy to, to facilitate, um, quite honestly, at this point in time. And we can move on from that. Like I don't think it's much else to say about them, like you said, yep. dishing it out like – you know, I don't know, free coffees. Um, Alpine, also a bunch of uh, people testing there. Some surprising, some not so surprising. We've got DeVry, um, Giovinazzi and Duan t- testing in private this week, um, it's been said. So interesting with these three. Um, obviously it's a, it's important part for um, Alpine when it comes to giving their academy drivers experiences in an F1 car, but it's also doubling now as an opportunity to run some of those additional drivers. So obviously we've got ex-Alfa Romeo driver um, in uh, in Giovinazzi. We've got Duan, um, who's currently off in, in, FT, in F2. And obviously, as we've all been reminded of, DeVry as well. Campy, if you were Alpine, who would you be putting in that second seat? Danny Rick. <laughs> All day. <laughs> the fact that they haven't who... looked at him and signed him yeah. straight away is remarkable for me. Knowing what – I mean, he only drove that car two years ago. Well, not even 18 months ago, realistically, he was in that car. And they saw the year that he had, that second year, and the way that he drove against Esteban Ocon was – he made him look like a child. Like the race pace was <laughs> comparable to Max Verstappen and everybody else. So, um, but if they're not going to go that way, and I can understand why they wouldn't go that way, they might feel a bit burnt by DR and the way that it left. But from all from all reports, the key people that were around in that Cyril Beatable era have now gone, and there's new people in there like your Mars, and he's going the way he wants to. Christian Horner, I believe, came out and said they'd take. Uh, DR right. if he was Alpine. So I want to I want to um, quote that. I want to quote that for a second. And this is um, so Christian Horner on um, podcast recently. I think just released a couple of days ago. Who said if I were Alpine, I'd take Daniel Ricciardo. They know him from a few seasons ago, and he was very together when he was there, scoring podiums. And he's the type of guy that you can rebuild for whatever reason. He's not had a great experience for whatever reason. But you've got to think back to the stunning overtakes that he's been capable of and that's still in there. There is a very capable driver in there and you just don't forget how to deliver. Confidence in this sport is critical. He doesn't have confidence in that car, which is affecting his own confidence. I hope he gets another chance and I want to see him stay in the sport and on the grid next year. Between the endorsement from Lewis Hamilton a couple of weeks ago and some statements like that, it's, it is pretty telling, right? Well, he's got the respect of the whole grid. I don't think there's anyone on the grid that would say that he hasn't performed and hasn't been one of those top drivers over the last seven or eight years, particularly since he moved into that top team in 2014 or 2013 at Red Bull. Um, he's proven proven track record, got the results. I'm looking at the guys that are trying to come in. And they're all unproven. Mm. They're all untested. They haven't set the light. They haven't set the world a light in their categories. I mean, we talk about DeVries. He's done well since he's left F2. Um, he had a great, great debut in the Williams. I mean, doing. I'm an Aussie. I'm rooting for him. But he's not. It's too early to he's not him. A, he's not a part of this class that has come into F3 and F2 and dominated straight away. He had a great second year in F3 after a disastrous first year and got the drive in F2, but he's been too inconsistent and he gets race wins when it's a reverse grid or it's he's qualified well, but in the other races he 
fails to make up those places. Um, but they're not they're not doing a Piastri or a Charles Leclerc or George Russell in these categories. They're not setting everyone's expectations from here, you know, up to up to ten. So I'm looking at who you would choose. Danny Rick's the clear favourite because he's because he's the best driver available. And if you're not going to take him and take a punt on somebody else, well. It just goes to say what Lewis said. And Lewis said basically that there's people on this grid that don't deserve to be here. Daniel Ricciardo is someone <laughs> that should. So, <laughs> you know. And there is people – there are, there are people totally. on this grid at the moment that don't deserve to be in F1. I'm not saying they're not competent and they're not here, but they never did the stuff behind closed doors or in the um, mm. in the in the categories moving up to the sport that deserve to be here. So it's – Look, it's motorsport, Freya, but and money talks <laughs> realistically. I'm going to keep a tally. We're going to do this. It's, it's after five. You started. It's after five o'clock. It's uh, yeah, that's true. I did. It's after five o'clock here, so I might start doing shots every time we say that. But it's um, no, it's completely true. And we name those those drivers. You know, Devry, people we were testing this week. Devry, um, Giovinazzi, Doan. Doing's 19, which just shows the obsession with youth currently in Formula One. And sure, Alpine want to continue to support his progress. So maybe he falls under the, you know, um, young driver kind of support fine. Um, Giovinazzi, like, he's still backed by by Ferrari. So if anything, you'd say that he's more likely to go to Haas for next year if they don't end up re-signing Schumacher. But like you said, you go, why would you not take the tried and tested available driver rather than take somebody who hasn't, you know, showed, proven their stripes yet, earned their stripes yet? Ah, mixed metaphors for the win. Um, you know, and who's who's unproven in, in F1. So it's interesting because, um, you know, we can sit here and speculate, but, hey, that's motorsport. So <laughs> there are another couple of things. <laughs> it's true. Um, there are another couple of interesting things in um, Horner's interview as well. I listened to a bit of that this afternoon. Um, you know, he was just kind of talking about how he feels like Red Bull are strong across all elements of the business, which is what allow, is partially allowing them to get results, which is kind of what we've talked about a little bit where you go, yeah, you've got a great driver, but you've also got great strategists, great business people, great mechanics. Every, everything is tying together. They don't really have any kind of chinks in their armour. But he made another interesting point, um, which was about the kind of the communications with race director. I know we've been talking a little bit about Massey recently, um, but he actually said after Silverstone last year, they should have said no more direct comms with the race director. Um, but he said by that point, everyone was kind of, you know, so, um, you know, com- this ultra competitive and just entrenched in it and like, you know, just like a dog with a bone wouldn't let go of that championship. But it was just interesting to kind of go in hindsight when I'm sitting here talking calmly to you, actually after Silverstone we should have said no more because that was already proving to be troublesome. It's good self-awareness by Horner. But Mm. I guarantee if he had the choice behind closed doors to give up that bone or not, he wouldn't have done it last year and either would have Toto. So... I mean, hindsight's a good thing. We've all got PhDs in it, but the reality is they <laughs> didn't make that decision and he was part of that. So it's all good to sit there and feel good. But, you know, and quickly, just on touching that, I, I haven't listened to that interview. It's on my it's on my list of things to do. But um, I, we had a chat for, for, on Monday about Mattia Bonotto and there's been a whole lot of news mm. coming out in Ferrari this week about reviews coming on and my my first thought is they don't need to do a review. They if they really look at the situation, they're up against it. Adrian Newey, Christian Horner, a Red Bull team that is well funded, have the mm-hmm. best motor and the best chassis and the best driver that we've probably seen yep. for twenty five years on the grid. And that's the reason there is massive points deficits in this championship. That's the reason they haven't won a race since, you know, the third race of the year when they'd won the first two out of the three and Leclerc had been getting poles. Yeah, they're quick around one lap, but it doesn't get the job on a Saturday, so on a Sunday. And that should be as simple as their review, in my opinion. Um, Keep Bonotto, keep the team you're in, don't replace people, don't come back and be Ferrari of history. Just continue on your path. Trust the process because eventually you get it right. You may have to make some decisions in four or five years' time if nothing's changed, but 
I think if you look across the world, best sporting organisations or the best businesses in the world, you trust the process that's in place and you adapt and change when you need to, but you're not making radical changes every four to five years to try and rebuild. And I think that's where Ferrari need to be. So as much as I despise or take when I laugh at Bonotto's <laughs> expense at times, he, I think he probably is the right man for the job and they should just stick with it for another two or three years to see what he can actually do with them. I would agree with you and I think it's very easy to – under pressure moments like this as a team, you can compare the same to organisations. We've seen it happen in other sports where they say, oh, yep, the coach is gone. You know, clearly you haven't delivered everything else. We're under so much pressure from whether it's media, sponsors, um, you know, other partners, whatever it might be, to make it look like we've made, you know, we've figured out who's to blame, so to speak, and they're gone, you know, and, and you start afresh. It rarely, rarely works. And even when you get that new person coming in, it takes them a couple of years to get to know the team, get to know their processes, understand what's working, what doesn't need to be fixed. Um, I think when it comes to Ferrari, it's like you said, they're up against the best of the best who seem to have figured it all out in a lot of ways. You know, they still have their moments. We can't forget, you know, Max's DNFs earlier in the year and they had their own reliability issues Um, and they've – they haven't always got their calls right either, um, but it's just that they get it right more often than Ferrari seem to. But the other thing is I kind of go, well, sure, go and do a review, but re- do a review of those processes, you know, how are you setting up for a weekend? Because what happened, for example, with Carlos um, when that wheel wasn't there, is it Carlos? Charles, I can't remember. No, it's Carlos. Um, that that wheel wasn't there and they when they talked about it afterwards, they are like, oh, you know, we ha- it was, the pit lane is so small and the garage is so small there that we need to, you know, go further around the car and you kind of go like that can't be the reason that you lose a race or a position or a podium or points, um, you know, because you hadn't thought about which way around the car you're going to go when you go to um, when you get to the pit lane. And sure, they'd said it was a very late call, but those are the types of things you go, get those things right. You know, your processes, your systems, um, your decision-making strategies, Get go and review those because that's where I would say there probably is improvement to be made um, and we're just not seeing those kind of errors being made in other teams. But like you said, I think drastic action would, would be a mistake and just throw more yeah. change and uncertainty into what is already a, a difficult situation. And yes, yes, I, I'll take the blame for this, but we as a podcast <laughs> take the piss out of Ferrari for it too. It's standard <laughs> Ferrari stuff, right? But at the end exactly. of the day, failure is what makes you succeed. And if you do not fail, imagine that team in two or three years' times when they've made absolutely every mistake that they can possibly make and they continue to do so and they're the bane of everyone's existence and Italy's trying to war against the whole F1 world because <laughs> – Ferrari aren't getting it right. There's going to be a point in time when they have the confidence and the calmness to sit in that position and go, all right, we know what we need to do here. Let's just cool our heads and let's get this right. And eventually they're going to get it right if they choose to learn from these mistakes. And I think they will because that's human nature. It's what we do. You learn from your mistakes. And it's not easy to watch. It's funny to watch at times, but it's, you know, I mean, we can't be too hard on them because – they could be an organisation that turns it around in 2026 and has the best car, the best chassis, best driver and goes and does what Mercedes or Red Bull's done for the last, you know, 16 years or whatever it's been. So kudos to them. And They'll I hope right. they do. They'll figure it out. Because I I hope they do because, it, like you said, it can be funny but it's not fun at the same time. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, the one other driver I just wanted to mention was Alex Albon. Um, you know, he's still saying that he's aiming to race at Singapore. Um, I may be Captain Hindsight and have a PhD in that and I don't have a medical degree, but that <laughs> seems like a lot. You know, coming back from major surgery and respiratory kind of failure from everything we've seen to then race at Singapore, you know, he's only out of hospital last week, Tuesday. So he had appendicitis and then went and had surgery to sort that out and then following surgery had a complication which put him on um, a ventilator and in the ICU which 
um, eventually, you know, they they got him all better and he released a, a statement or a little video um, during the week um, to say, you know, my plan is, you know, as with a, with a big smile on his face actually. It's very sweet but um, it just seems like a lot to try and especially in Singapore. Like we've seen what some of the others are doing to um, to prepare, you know, they're putting exercise bikes in saunas and whatnot to try and acclimatise. Like that's going to be putting a huge amount of stress on your body, right? That's my official medical yeah, opinion. <laughs> official medical. Oh, mm. yeah. If he thinks he can do it, let him do it. He's got the contract to drive. He's the driver. I mean, we got AFL finals coming up, you know, which will let Joel Selwood play at 80%. <laughs> Rather than a hundred, you probably would. I've got tickets, by the way, which is bloody awesome. So, Do you? Um, oh, I mean, the yeah, days aren't I had, in it, so I don't really care. But it's uh, yeah. it is what it is. It'll be all right. <laughs> I had I had a friend ring me up. And he goes, "Oh, yeah, you're coming. I've got two tickets." I was like, "Yes." Anyway, so <laughs> moving on. Well, from, do you know we're what this F1 well, this podcast. From- we are an F1 podcast, but just very briefly, and this is semi F1. This it must have been like only a couple of weeks ago. Actually, I went. I probably had one of the greatest weekends of my life, which was Daniel Ricciardo Monza, and um, the D's had just made it through. And as a long suffering D's and and then also DR fan, it was just I didn't know what to do with myself. In all honesty, I was like wandering around <laughs> in forty degree heats with a with a Daniel Ricciardo hoodie on and my D's beanie, and I was like, who is this? lunatic um anyway (laughs) so quite a different year this year if you like me somebody who lives overseas but also just wants to watch shows from all over the place and missing out on your favorite shows not available in your region try to keep your private time private campy looking at you well, let me introduce NordVPN. NordVPN allows Campy to watch The Real Housewives of Alabama whenever he wants. But if you also, if you're bored with Australian Netflix, easy to do, why not take it for a spin in the US? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. You don't need to travel to Japan or Singapore, which is where our next grid GP is, for your favourite anime when recording NordVPN brings it right to you. You can reach 5,000 server options and no show is out of your reach. So using our link, nordvpn.com forward slash lakeside drive, you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus four free months. That's four free months campy of straight real housewives. You can cover OC, Alabama, New York, Florida, um, you can probably, I reckon there's maybe a, like a Denver Real Housewives. I don't know. But these are all accessible to you using NordVPN. Plus, part of our binging, we want to keep it private, right? So NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. So say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware, of course. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and it deletes it just like Campy probably wishes he could delete his browsing history. But it makes a mess of your computer, as he will know. But NordVPN is there with its threat protection feature. And all of this is risk-free. Don't forget that there is literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. So give it a try and if you like it, that's awesome. If you don't, they'll issue a refund and you can pretend the entire situation never even happened. NordVPN.com slash Lakeside Drive to get your subscription started today. You're right, Formula One, let's move on. Um, So let's get into our profile for this week. Now just watch me butcher this name, but the woman I want to talk about here is Christina Emanuelides, who is a CFD engineer at Alfa Romeo. And, yes, I did have to look up what a CFD engineer is and and that was the first question you asked me when we got on recording. I know what what it is. I know what it is, Fra. You do now. (laughs) It's a computational fluid dynamics person. (laughs) (laughs) Person is the best part of that title. Yeah. That is right. That's right. So he's a computational fluid dynamics engineer, but as we've both learned, 
has nothing to do with fluid, not in the way that we think it's going to, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so she joined Alfa Romeo in 2018. She's around about 30 years old. Um, and we'll get to some of the other work that she's doing kind of off the track when it comes to racing pride and FIA girls on track. But just a bit about her background before we get into exactly what a CFD engineer does. So uh, Christina went to McRobb in Melbourne and for anybody who's driven around Melbourne or has been to it and has been to the um, the Melbourne Grand Prix, that school is about as close as you can get. It's basically inside the track. So she was kind of saying, you know, we used to get Thursdays and Fridays off because of the fencing that would go in um, for the Melbourne Grand Prix. So she did grow up around it a little bit, but at the same time she said, you know, my family wasn't obsessed with Formula One. We were in a motorsport family, but I knew what it was. Um, and she kind of said, look, I was, I was pretty passionate about cars and technology. I just liked to know how things worked, which of course means that engineering was very much the perfect combination when it comes to both what she's interested in and what she was good at. So she was saying that they often used to get um, things like career profile tests and whatnot done at school. And she said it always came out every single time um, as engineering. And she said, luckily her interests did align with her personality and her strengths and Unlike some of the other people who we have talked about who kind of said, you know, Formula One became a bit of a goal once I really learned that, that was kind of the pinnacle of engineering. For her, Formula One was, in fact, always the goal. Um, you know, she started researching how to get into it at the end of school. But as you can imagine, people who are finishing school kind of, you know, 12, 13 years ago, now we just jump online and you can look at different people doing different jobs. What was their, you, you know, what did they do? It wasn't as easy then. Yeah, you had to go and actually do some hardcore research about, well, how do you even plot a path when there's not a lot of, I mean, we don't know the companies that work behind the scenes in F1 and how you get there. And I mean, you know the big names, but I know I know what Holden is, but I wouldn't have a clue where it is or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what it is they do. But then you get online and they've got 25 different, addresses it's like well which one do I look at where do I go here that was just the world back then right so yep good on her that's um I like that because I kind of feel like those school things can pigeonhole kids a bit growing Mm -hmm. up -hmm. you know what what does your personality suggest you'd be good at I'm not but I like that that's a good feel-good story about you know archaic You would know about this archaic personality <laughs> <Yes>. profiles. That <laughs> well, let's not go in there reality because that is absolutely what I worked nothing. in for about five years and am exceptionally well qualified in. But but I can also tell you that there are some some terrible ones, um, but there are some very good ones which have very good test retest reliability. But we won't get into that because we're talking about Christina. Like you said, it was good that it worked for her. Um, but she did have to work hard to find out that information. Like you said, you couldn't just look it up then. Um, and it was really difficult for her to figure out what she needed to do, where she needed to go. Eventually started at RMIT in Melbourne. Um, but again, as she continued to kind of do that research, she realised that really she had to move to the UK um, or somewhere in Europe. Um, Got to get to UK, yeah. Yeah, in order to kind of get a bit closer to that F1 goal. And like you said, you know, you learn a lot in that researching process, things like the fact that teams have different connections with different universities because of where their factories are located um, and there are degrees that you can really shape around motorsport. And she said, I just had no idea that that was, that was the case. That's not something that you really learn about Um in Australia, let alone at at an all-girls school. Um, And again, just through that process, kind of saying that finding out all that information was really, really hard, but it was a really important move for her. Um, And you can imagine it would be pretty daunting. She was only 18 when she moved over to the UK, but she just said, look, I was following my dream. So I wasn't really, yeah, so, you know, I wasn't really scared. I didn't have a lot of fear. I was and very much confident in what I was trying to pursue. And she does credit her her high school for that in that she describes it as a very empowering place and just one that was surrounded, where she was surrounded by smart, driven women and everyone would just kind of say, yeah, like I'm doing this, you know. Um, so that very much a part of her, her drive. So 
Christina gets to the UK, does her um, Bachelor of Engineering um, at Oxford Brookes University. Um, like I said, only 18 when she moved and lots of hurdles um, that she kind of describes when she gets there, including halfway through her second year realising that she was actually enrolled in the wrong course, um, which just amazed me for someone who I imagine is pretty like, like detail-oriented. How does that happen? But I'm sure there's a story. <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so like putting um, a PowerPoint on the wrong wall, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that, Campy. Yeah. <laughs> but the tenacity that she has, which I'm sure you had, which may helped you find the correct wall um, and problem solving her way through that really helped her to work through all of those challenges and settle into UK life. Now, she said that she was only one of five women in her engineering course of about 300 students, um, which she said, you know, it kind of reflects her current environment in, in a lot of ways. But went on from her Bachelor's of Engineering to then go and do her Master's by Research at Durham University. And you can actually go and watch the wind tunnel test on YouTube, which her thesis was on, which was motorsport tyre heat transfer and aerodynamics. Just a little bit of information for you there if anyone's interested. Um, but so after her Yeah, exactly. I I was very tempted to read out just like a couple of lines from her, um, from her thesis, which is just, it's another language, campy, like, anyway, it's. Yeah, it's it's like reading music. It's just. It is. A different. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It's very true. Um, So she finishes her master's. Um, She did work for several businesses, including a software business um, who supplies to F1. Like you said, there's all of these companies behind the sport, um, which she had to go and learn about. But in addition to software businesses, um, automotive and then motorsport um, in the UK, Italy, and ultimately Switzerland. So you can imagine that on top of all of this, you know, she's got that pressure of, of living away as well, um, kind of away from family at a pretty young age. Common story in, yeah. in Formula One. In saying that, you go overseas and everyone that's travelling is either Aussie or Kiwi and they seem to be backpacking <laughs> around the world and it's fairly – everyone you meet, it's oh, just another bloody Aussie. So I left the place to get away from you but no, no, not to minimise it. It is a big step at 19 being a girl. It's a bit, a bit different being mm. a young guy going and doing pub work and that sort of stuff, backracking around the world but, hey, that is excellent. Backracking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to say. Oh, dear. (laughs) By use of the English language, it is another language too, so. Indeed. No, like you said, it's, um, it does, that, that element of kind of being a female away is is very different and we'll get to, to part of that in a minute, but. Let's answer that question of what is a CFD engineer. So as we mentioned earlier, it is a computational fluid dynamics engineer, um, which basically sees her working within the aerodynamics department. Um, So creating and optimising the aerodynamic simulations so that the aerodynamicists can then develop the car quickly and in a cost-effective way. So yes, there is the wind tunnel that they can go and test parts in, but as we've talked about, um, you know, that's expensive <laughs> and to develop and manufacture the parts to then put in the wind tunnel. So simulation is really important to. So her role's way before that, is that right? Yeah, but also after, right? So that's exactly it. So if yeah. you, um, not sure if anyone listened to our last podcast with Dr. Catherine Richards, who is that wind tunnel test technician, Christina's role would come way before a potential upgrade gets into the wind tunnel, but for testing, but then also after. Um, so it, it, she's kind of on both sides when it comes to, um, you know, the simulations and making sure that it's coming out of the wind tunnel as they expected, but then also going into it, having run simulations and th- that working effectively. Um, but to put it in her words, because I'm probably describing this terribly, she says, we use data from the track and the wind tunnel and we do a lot of checks and improvements to increase the quality of simulations. So it's all about the quality of the simulations and making sure that those are in fact testing parts in a way that is expected to and that's happening reliably. So while that's the nature of her role at Alfa Romeo, um, she does also note that 
you know, depending on the size of the team, that could look quite different. So a CFD engineer at different teams could actually be doing quite different things. You know, some might be more focused on the software programming side of things, um, correlation to wind tunnel work. Others might be more kind of collaborative on the aero problem solving side of things. Um, so the size of the team, um, you know, if you work for a really big team, it could mean that you're much more specialised um, in in those areas. But she says she's very happy at Alfa Romeo, but the size of the team is an interesting one um, and is hoping that it grows. So she did an interview with um, the female drive and did ask, and they did ask if um, she was looking to work for one of those bigger teams and she kind of said, look, prior to Alfa, um, she was working for businesses that supplied supplied teams and software in particular and allowed that through that was allowed to do the kind of on the ground support work, which meant that she got actually to experience those different team dynamics um, almost from an outsider's perspective though. And she said, as a result of that, I can confirm that I'm really happy actually in Alfa Romeo is loving living in Switzerland, but she does hope that the team will grow, which again, through some of the other comments that we've heard from Valtteri um, and other employees as well at Alfa Romeo, there's the kind of that wanting, desperate want for that group to grow and evolve. And come together a bit more, and yeah. Yep. Mm. Now, Valtteri's been very open about that. And rightly so. Coming from coming from Mercedes, the pinnacle of F1 at the time, he would have got a rough idea of and a, a very good understanding of what more people can bring to it. Like what, what a – sorry, more people is the wrong thing, but a, a collaborative and a collective and a diverse group of people can actually bring to a race team like that. And um, – he sees that moving forward and he's obviously behind closed doors. He's like, well, we need to forge the relationships with people now inside the working team so that when new people come in, that's what's modelled and they just get on straight board. It's the culture thing, right, and and grow those teams into what they can be to get best race cars on the grid. Obviously, there's budget, there's constraints that they need to work around and all the other stuff that comes with it. But, uh, yeah, Valtteri would have a very good understanding of what that's what what that entails. Absolutely. And it's interesting to hear about that from people who have different perspectives within the sport, right? From engineers, from drivers, people working in the factory, people who are at the track, um, all kind of echoing that that sentiment. Um, but interestingly as well, she kind of said, look, being based in Switzerland or whether you're based in Italy, you know, depending on where um, your, your factory is, changes how much how likely you are to kind of move around. You know, there's a difference in a UK team where there's more mobility. You know, there's a difference between move, moving from Woking to Milton Keynes from in comparison to, you know, yep. Switzerland <laughs> yeah. to, to Italy. Um, so, you know, with that with that in mind as well, she's kind of said that she's very keen to, to stay put for the time being. But in terms of what a day in the life of a CFD engineer looks like, Christina says, look, there's no standard date. It really depends on what stage of the season you're at and what's going on. So you can expect throughout the season roughly to know approximately what you'll be working on. You know, you tend to work on different parts at different times of the season. Um, but with that said, she said, you know, one perhaps constant part of her role is meeting regularly with the aerodynamicists to understand what their needs are um, and what needs to be tested. You know, there was some, there's something at the track that didn't perform um, as they had expected it to that needs to go back in the simulator, understand what was different there, different there, but it's all about problem solving. It's just that the problem's constantly changing. Um, and that's interesting to me. I kind of think, you know, it's easy to imagine a role like that, they would, that it would be quite predictable, but that's actually something that she said is it's more unpredictable than even she would have expected. Um, but that's something that really appeals to her in terms of the variability of it all. And it keeps every day interesting. Um, another kind of element of her role is that in comparison to some other positions involved in formula one, um, there's no off season. Um, you know, it's kind of the same the whole year round. So naturally it's just heightened. It just, it just yeah. season into season. So it kind of naturally it's heightened. Like they're busy just before the start of a season when they're kind of running those final simulations to actually develop a part, put it on track. Um, but I can imagine that, and it doesn't sound dissimilar from lots of roles in Formula One, that's something you have to be really careful with burnout. You know, I just, when you think about that kind of relentless application um 
that's something that you would think that there is a susceptibility to um, just, you know, and, and actually being passionate about it can increase your vulnerability to it. Um, so yeah, question for me is how much formula one and then the teams think about, you know, the, <laughs> the sustainability of how things are organized. And she does talk about that quite a bit actually, um, in terms of saying, you know, how much does formula one really think about the people? Not much. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think if, if you work for a formula one team, like their past work life balance, right. It's like mm. there's work and then there's travel and then there's work yeah. and then there's, if you choose to have a family at home, they need to be very respectful of and understand what it is you're passionate about and what you do. So there, there is no balance, but the burnout thing is interesting. I know a couple of guys, even just locally here, that um, have businesses that operate and work in and around uh, V8 supercars. I know, I know one particular guy who was a race engineer for many, many years, and um, he, you know, he got incredibly sick at one point, and mm. you know, not. It wasn't life-threatening or anything, but it just meant that he – and it was all a stress thing. It was all the, just the stress of the job, you know, after – not that he physically showed stress, but, um, you know, the stress of that job after many years just put him in a place where he just burnt out and just needed three months in bed, really. And, you know, I know another couple of guys who are mechanics and, uh, and they're volunteers – and it takes up a hell of a lot of time right. just to go and do yep. these things. They're they're very hard working individuals as it is, but um, you know, I mean, throwing family, kids, dynamics, traveling around the world, I can only imagine that that, that balance just gets thrown out. You must be, you know, you're almost like a driver or an athlete. You know, you're incredibly selfish to do what you want to do and driven to get the results you get. Uh, I think it's quite rewarding as well, but yeah. We're past that work-life balance when it comes to working in F one, aren't we? It's sort of expected. It's like yeah, you go work I think for a while so. At the top. Yeah, I think I think so, and I think it's just, it's an interesting to see how it affects the different roles, though. You know, like I said, we we do think about a lot when it comes to the drivers because of obviously what their bodies are going through in combination with that travel. Now, her role is actually mostly factory based, um, in comparison to other other engineering roles which might be providing that on the ground support because she is based with the simulator. So she's mostly factory based, almost completely factory based. Um, but another interesting thing here is that she's kind of saying we think about Formula One as this, you know, playground for innovation. Um, but what's interesting when she said she's come from, you know, software businesses and automotive businesses, for example, because you have regulations and limitations within Formula One, um, people don't always understand how much they affect how they use, how that affects how you use um, re- resources and what you can and can't do. So it kind of, it almost, it almost limits the logic or the accuracy or the efficiency that you might otherwise want to go about things with. Um, said, you know, coming coming from automotive, they used to be able to run sims for days, whereas, you know, you don't have the time or the resources or allowance to kind of test that extensively. Um, but, of course, that means, she said, we, we then have a new conundrum, um, which is really important, which is the speed between, uh, sorry, the balance between speed and accuracy. Um, so, again, just another Interesting understanding as to how things like regulations, cost caps, um, technical considerations affect every single role that is involved with getting a car on track. So the last bit which I just wanted to touch on when it comes to um, Christina and the other work that she is doing, obviously in addition to being a CFD engineer, we now know what that is, um, is her work when it being comes to- Being a woman in motorsport. Being a woman in motorsport and that is exactly it. So before we get to her current work as an ambassador, um, in so many ways her reflections on her university experience are super interesting. So as I mentioned, she was one in, about one in five of 300 and she said it was pretty rare to have other women in her class. But she said, she said I always felt like I belonged, you know, I worked hard to get there and she said, oh, you know, I wasn't trying to be one of the boys. I was just being me. And to me that is a really interesting statement because we're talking about there the difference between kind of assimilation and belonging where, you know, that idea of fitting in is saying who do I need to be in order to be accepted, whereas saying I feel like I belong Yourself somewhere is, is saying, 
Exactly. You know, I'm not, I'm not asking you to change. I'm asking, in fact, for you to be exactly who you are, but I will leave my organizational culture talk for another time, but just another insight from someone (laughs) who is a minority, um, in, in this sport. So Christina, interestingly said that it, it kind of takes her, it took her a few years to establish her stance on things. So she said, you know, I didn't kind of come into formula one and then immediately join certain, messages or um kind of campaigns so I want to I wanted to gain my own experience in this stuff first to actually understand what my stance on things was um and then kind of position her voice through her lived experience but then after a while understood her position with these types of topics when it comes to things like gender equality diversity and the like um and really recognized why it was actually important to her um so not just jumping on a message but doing it through her own experience but she said once i was in so to speak and i could reflect on my own experience getting into formula 1 was able to say okay maybe the opportunities aren't equal for everyone and of course with this, we're talking about all sorts of diversity areas, um, you know, things like different socioeconomic groups and backgrounds, not just not just gender. But she talks about this quite a lot in terms of going back to that point at the start of saying there just isn't that much information out there of trying to get into the sport, especially if you're not born into it, so to speak. So that's a big motivating force for her in terms of trying to put her story out there, the course that she took, the conversations that she had, the moves that she made to get into a sport so that other people can, it can be easier for others. A lot of that stuff too is, 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 it's like me, motorsport for me growing up. My parents weren't, my dad's, my dad wears a suit, runs building companies, like he sits in an office, like he doesn't, he's not a very hands-on guy. Um, (laughs) But for me, like motorsport and motorbikes was what I was passionate about. So for mum and dad to get me a motorbike and try and get me into racing was so foreign from them. You know, they had to go and, you know, meet people and, you know, dad's good like dad. He met people or he knew people in his industry that were involved in it. And he made those connections and figured out how to make it work. But it's a bit like me jumping into a rowing, like an elite rowing college. If you're not in that culture or those things aren't at your disposal – it, it's not the want to get there, you know. It's a lot harder to get in because you start from the bottom and you know nothing, right? And I love the fact that these people come from these places where they're so out of it. They've got that, you know, that ruthless tenacity to just not only be themselves in this world but chase the dream that they want because they know that's the dream they want. And it's an all credit to these to the well, Christina. Clearly, I mean, all credit. And I think that's probably been modelled to her right throughout school. She said that, you know, again, another high-performing school as well and having a wife that grew up in an environment like that as well. I know that very passionate about their school and, you know, what they can bring to the world and that, that you know, that, that, that feminism of yesteryear which really did empower a hell of a lot of women to go out and do what they do. I think it's amazing we're now seeing that generationally throw through. So yeah, it's good for uh, good for Christina. I'd, Absolutely. I'd, I'd admire her from afar. For sure. Like you said, empowering is exactly the word that she uses and now she gets to be a proponent of positive action. And, and as you said, it's kind of it's having that intergenerational effect, but even within this generation it's having that effect. She said, you know, is, we're, um, she's talking to girls who are only a couple of years younger than her or maybe they've finished their course and they're trying to figure out how to get their apprenticeship or their their internship or their first job. And so she's like, you know, this isn't we're doing in in generation change, not necessarily, you know, she's like, we need to, we need to move faster. But like I said, she is now very much a proponent of positive action. Um, so she's an FIO Girls on Track ambassador. Um, so like I said, she didn't know how to get into the sport, let alone have a female engineer mentor. And she wants to show others how to go about it. And, you know, she's like, I can do this. I can provide them with mentorship. She also does community outreach work with the Female Drive. She's also on Women's Sport Collective as an advisory panel member and also having joined Racing Pride as an industry ambassador in 2021. She was then appointed as on the board of directors in 2022. So very much hoping to drive change towards a more inclusive and equal landscape in that respect in the motorsport injury in industry. Um, but all of that brings with it a lot of work. And again, like you said, you kind of admire from, from afar because, you know, yes, she's going about her engineering role, but she goes, she, there's a great um, kind of line from her in a couple of interviews that I've listened to. She said, you know, I'll be ducking off to go to the bathroom and I edit a track or, in, you know, 
factory between simulation tests and I'll be taking a call for, you know, racing pride in this, this, that and the other. And he said, you know, it's, it's actually nonstop work, but it's worth it when it comes to helping to drive change more quickly. And a lot of that required her to say, why is it important to me? And she said, well, when you have a diverse team, you make a faster car. And she said, part of it is as simple as that, but also then providing information and resources. Again, going back to that idea of how difficult it was for her to get into F1, but then that visibility factor, which we talk about a lot. But for this season, actually not necessarily talking about visibility of being able to see other women working in motorsport, but um, all the different ways in which you can get into motorsport. No, visibility and- of the change. Exactly. Yeah, of, and visibility of, of the change they're making as well, yeah. Yep, for sure. So she was kind of – she's really um, supportive of the more in-depth coverage that we're now getting, which is helping to grow the fan base um, and helping people to understand all of those different roles, which is also exactly what we're doing here, you know, talking about people who are involved in different parts of motorsport, not just the drivers. Um, she was asked – what would you, what advice would you give to um, a young Christina? And she said, you know, I would always ask that question of whether or not it was achievable to get into F1. And so my advice would be, you know, there are many paths. You might take a different path to a hundred other people. Maybe you get there a different way, but whatever you don't do, don't give up. So on that note, Christina Emanuelides, you're an absolute, absolute hero. Star. Um, star in our, in our books. And do you know what's awesome about her when I was, again, you, you listen to people's kind of tone and the way they talk about their role and everything else. She doesn't come across as someone who takes her role in F1 for granted in the slightest. And to me, that is probably because she had to work so hard to get there and took very deliberate gets, steps to get there. You know, she hasn't fallen into, into the sport. This is very much somebody who has worked her backside off to get there. So Kudos claps to, <laughs> to Christina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Send you a T-shirt. <laughs> exactly. Christina, there is a T-shirt coming your way. All righty. That is our profile for this week. Thank you for joining me, Campy. That's all I've got. Is there anything oh, else you anytime. wanted to chat about? <laughs> I think we've done pretty oh, well. No, I think after that we can't do it. Quickly, what are your thoughts on Danny Rick and Mercedes taking a a, a, a testing role, so to I speak. I just, yeah, I just don't. I'm with I'm with Lewis Hamilton on this. Like, I just don't think it's a great move for him. The one thing I would say is that I have a f- worry that if he's out of the car completely. We are thinking very optimistically to think that someone's then going to bring him back into the sport. Um, it's been done, obviously. Yes. We know it's been done, but um, I think now with as you know, you guys are talking about this kind of team's obsession with finding the next Max, the the next Lewis Hamilton in a current batch of nineteen year olds, and that being the way team seems to be going, I I worry that if he's out of a seat completely that we don't see him get back in one. And, hey, if that means that he is at tracks and then somebody else is sick and then he jumps in that car and pantses everybody, then maybe it's a good move for him if that's an available option. You know, look at Nick DeVry. Like if he wasn't there as a, as a, as a reserve driver, he wouldn't be in contention for the seats that we're currently talking about him in the way that he is. So maybe it helps him keep an opportunity open. Yeah, perfectly said. I... Uh... He needs to be in the car. He needs to be on. He needs to be on the grid. Mm. I, I have a little feeling that it's a bit like a Jensen Button career move. That something will pop up. You know, like the Braun thing. The kind and of the two thousand eight, two thousand nine situation. Yeah, all with Bross Braun. Well, Button. Mm. I said on Monday, Button was out of a career. He's out of a drive, and then you know, <laughs> at midnight before the season started. You know, he got this call to say, come and drive this car. It was a world championship car. But um, I think I have a feeling it's a bit like that. It's, and that only happens if someone gets injured or a Lewis Hamilton retires and they go, all right, Danny, you're up, step up. Oh, no. Yeah, he's kind of said that he's already, yeah, he's already said that that's not happening oh, anytime soon. So, like, I nah. just. I think at the same time, like I don't, I don't think that he's a reserve driver. I think he is a top twenty driver, he's top no. five driver. But 
at the same time, if that's what helps you keep potential track time and be there when the opportunity arises, if that's what he wants to do, stay in the port, sport, then do it. But if yeah. you, if that's not what you want, then I don't know, go and produce more epic merch that I will waste all of my money on. <laughs> <laughs> what a bucket hat. Unlike our merchant, uh, what do, I don't even know it now, lakesidedrive.com. <laughs> Let's Sleep go with there. that. <laughs> James is going to hate us. Uh, Trust me, I do editing this thing. Yeah, who cares? And on that, on that note, I think we might wrap up our podcast for this week. Um, James... We, we don't hate you. We do care. Um, alrighty. Thanks for joining me, Campy, and making sure that this was not a phlegm-free Anytime. podcast. Um, and everybody, don't forget that you Thoroughly can... enjoyed it. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, don't forget that you can support the show by either subscribing to our YouTube channel, getting some merch from our uh, website that we don't know the name of, and grabbing a NordVPN subscription or jumping onto our Patreon link, which you find in our bio. Thank you to everybody who does that already. We appreciate it dearly. Yeah. But it's over and out from Campy and Freya. <laughs> Liars. CFD engineer. What's that? What's CFD stand for? Oh, sorry. Computational um, fluid dynamics. Computational Shit. fluid dynamics. All right. Computational fluid dynamics. So is that, that's not just it's not just fuel, is it? Tell me you're smart without telling me you're smart. Yeah, all right. <laughs>